0: Morning, guys. Um, All right. I believe this is it. So this is Mark 7. So, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And and there are many traditions that that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you, al- then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it is not his heart, but his it it, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> um, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger in his ear, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he signed and said to him, "Aphatha," that is, be open. His ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak.
1: Nice. Uh, Well, welcome everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, it's good to have you. Uh, Does anyone here listen to the podcast, Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast? Okay. Okay, a few. So uh, on season four, they're doing like a little mini-series right in the middle of it about moral reasoning, which is like, how do you answer hard questions? That's the, the, the larger topic or theme underneath it. How do you answer hard questions that you haven't had to answer before? where there's not a lot of rules or traditions or previous experience to guide you in answering these questions. How do you answer those questions? And the first episode revolves around the story of Andy Pettit, who was a major league pitcher. And as soon as I said that, I feel like I just exhausted all my baseball knowledge possible. So you're just going to have to hold with me as I tell this story. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yankees, that's all I got. Welcome. Um, (laughs) Welcome. I was a theater kid, not a sports kid. I have soft palms. That's not my fault. But Andy Pettit was a baseball player who uh, won a couple World Series. I knew I knew enough about him to know that he was famous, and I knew mostly what I knew about him is that in 2008 he had apologized for using performance-enhancing drugs, and he supposedly used per, per, performance-enhancing drugs to recover from an injury. Now, if you know anything about baseball, this is the thing you probably know, is that baseball has had a messy history with performance-enhancing drugs. You think about, like, Mark McGuire or Barry Bonds or A-Rod. Like, these famous players, famous enough for me to know, have all in some ways become famous because their careers were amazing, and yet there was scandal ridden through it because of performance-enhancing drugs. And so the question that Gladwell is asking in his podcast is... Is the case of Andy Pettit and the case of, say, someone like Barry Bonds the same? They're both using performance-enhancing drugs. They're both using them in an era of baseball where performance-enhancing drugs are banned. But they're using them for different purposes, hypothetically. Pettit is using them to recover from an injury. Bonds is using them to enhance and extend a career. So how do you answer the question of whether Pettit should use performance-enhancing drugs or whether... He should be penalized for it. That's the question underneath it. And baseball answered that question by saying, Pettit was wrong. He should not have used performance-enhancing drugs even for the sake of an injury. And that is because you could say that baseball has a tradition or a wisdom about performance-enhancing drugs that they are applying to both situations. Now, most of us hear that, we might say it should be different but it wasn't. The tradition was applied to both moments. Pettit's career was reevaluated. He was forced to publicly apologize, and you could say that forever on out, he will always be seen in light of that incident. Now, the reason I like that story is because I think that is exactly the dynamic that is happening in Mark chapter 7. You have these Pharisees and these scribes who, they have come to Jesus, and they accuse him and his disciples of not following the tradition of the elders. And that tradition is specifically eating with unclean hands. Now, when they say unclean hands, they do not mean hygienically. Right? That's how we think. That's like our culture is more about hygiene. They mean ritual purity. They're talking about, have your hands been purified? And so there's this large tradition that is existing within like the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, where in order to not be defiled, because that's their fear when it comes to purity, is that if you have unclean hands, you'll touch something, you'll defile it, then you'll eat it and you'll actually defile yourself. And so they have developed these elaborate rituals and traditions in order to protect themselves from being defiled. So you'd go to the market, you'd buy something, you'd go home and you'd have to wash right. Maybe you bought like a plate, you'd have to wash the plate right. Before you eat, you'd have to wash correctly. After you ate, you'd have to wash correctly. And each of these gestures was about protecting yourself from becoming ritually unclean. It's a tradition. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus and they say, you do not follow this tradition. But the thing about the tradition is that ritual cleansing Is not part of Torah, or you could say God's way or God's law in the Old Testament. Now, it's not exactly not Torah, because Torah has a lot to say about impurity. Instead, this tradition is an extension of Torah into real life. Meaning, there's this belief about purity, and the Pharisees have developed a tradition in order to protect themselves, to stay pure. So the religious leadership believes that washing is the best way to live out. God's way in real life. It is a tradition or a wisdom that flows out of Torah as they try to figure out how do we stay pure? How do we do what God is calling us to do? We do this all the time in our own lives. When I was young, my parents had a rule that I was not allowed to have girls in my room, which I obeyed perfectly. Now, is that Bible? Is it Bible? No. The Bible has nothing to say about preteen dating culture in the early aughts. You can look for it all you want. I promise you it's not there. I looked. But it's not there. So instead, my parents had a belief about who God is, a way of understanding God's love, a way of understanding how God works, a way of understanding God's intentions for the universe, And then they had a moment, they had a teenager, a boy teenager as a son, they were like, well, we got to figure out what to do with that. In light of it, (laughs) I didn't mean to say this, that just sounds so weird. But you have God's teachings, you have a teenage boy, and you're like, okay, so how do we figure this out together? How does this way of God extend into real life? And that is where the rule of no girls in my room came from. It is a wisdom that flows out of God's law that becomes a tradition or becomes a rule. Right? Now, that's good. It's right. It's acceptable for me. That was a good tradition for my parents to establish. But that tradition is not always good. Like, today, if Tori and I were to go over to my parents' house, and they were still not to let me have a girl in a room alone, I'd be like, well, that's weird. I'm a married man. (laughs) This is no longer protecting. This is controlling, and you're weird. So the tradition and the wisdom has to change because the context of my situation changes. We would not say that holding on to that law or tradition in all circumstances is right in all circumstances. And that is the problem with the Pharisees. The tradition that they have established is devoid of people and context. And therefore it has missed God's intention. So Pettit and Bond are treated exactly the same. Teen Johnny and adult Johnny are treated exactly the same, barring any context. Tradition is no longer flowing out of wisdom for a moment, but it has become a law. And Jesus does not respond gently to the Pharisees doing that. He says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition." So in doing this, you have actually rejected the intentions of God, the way of God, and you have put your own tradition, your own rules, your own wisdom above and over what God is trying to do. Now Jesus responds so intensely in this moment, especially to something that sounds like it's about hand washing. And so why is Jesus this upset about this moment? Why would he say your hearts are far from God? Well, to illustrate why this thing matters to him so much, he goes on to use a different example that has nothing to do with purity. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother. So that's from the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, religious leaders, that if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. In many such things you do. It's a different example than purity, but it gets to the same core. Corban is this tradition that is a way of saying that I'm going to dedicate something of mine to God. So say you had a home, and you're like, I really want this home to be dedicated to the purposes of God. So you would say, my home is Corban. It's now dedicated to God. It's dedicated to his intention. I have $10,000. I'm dedicating it to God. And when God tells me to do something with it, I'm going to do something with it. But that's good. That's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to hold to. It's a good value to have. You could say that it is connected to God's intentions. It flows out of there, and it's a way of living out the way of God. That's a good and right thing. But the problem is that Corbin, this vow to God, has become a way of not caring for people. So in this moment specifically, the issue is that you declare something, a vow to God, and then don't care for your parents. So when your parents need your help, which in Jewish tradition, you were actually supposed to care for them when they got old, you say, oh, we don't have to care for them because we've dedicated ourselves to God. Or when someone in need comes and asks you for something, you're like, oh yeah, I can't help you, sorry, it's dedicated to God. Jesus in doing this, you have actually made void the word of God. You've made void his intention because you have extracted his intention and his people from your practice. And now your religion is empty. A vow to God in this moment is bad if it stops you from loving your parents. A vow to God in this moment is bad if it stops you from loving those in need. That's a crazy thing that Jesus is trying to get us to understand, that you can make a vow to God, live into this religious authenticity, and it can actually be wrong if you are not loving well. So Jesus sets this up. He's like, so here's, I want you to understand what God is doing in this. And then he says, let me address purity culture. So then he swings back into address the purity culture. And he says this, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But it's the things that come out of person that defile him. The disciples don't initially understand what he is saying because they never understand what he is saying. So he says this, he says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, cannot defile, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. I feel like Jesus is so frustrated at this moment. He's like, no, you get it, you eat it, and then what happens to it? You go to the bathroom. He's like, that can't defile you. Obviously, Jesus did not know that cinnamonies were back on the menu at Burger King. I can for sure defile myself with that. So he goes on to say, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of humans, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. So the Pharisees, they understand purity as something that others have and that can be taken away from you. So if you touch something that's defiling, you can lose your purity. If you interact with something that is impure or defiled, you can lose your purity. But Jesus is flipping it in saying that purity is actually something that flows out of you towards others. It's something that is directly connected to your relationship with God that flows from you into the world around you. And therefore, it's not about what you touch or about what you eat or about the things around you. It is about how you love. Impurity isn't about something getting into you, but it's about love getting out of you. That's the only metric for purity that makes any sense. So the Pharisees, they understand this like, religious culture to be about their connection to God. And Jesus actually agrees with that, but he flips how it works. Purity flows out of God's character, which is love to his people. It's not about hand-washing. It's about caring for the poor. It's not about these Corbin vows. It's about loving your parents. And this is true if you think about all of Jesus' teachings. His most famous command is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor. That moment is Jesus connecting the dots and saying, actually, to do one, you do the other. Love moves in a direction. Purity moves in a direction. It's not about religious abstraction. It is about practiced love. That's the way God's kingdom, the way his story works. He say in 1 John that if someone claims to know me, does not love their brother, he is a liar. But the measure of God's religion is always practiced love. And this is what makes Jesus so mad. He said, you have made being the people of God to be about nothing. You've actually voided the word of God. When you do this, we don't exist for any reason. There's nothing for us to do. You've transformed my ways into religious abstractions. You've made it void. But You have emptied this thing that is called the gospel or this thing that is called the way of Jesus, of all of its substance, and now it is void. And empty because it has nothing to say about everyday life. There is no practice of love in the midst of us. It's just empty religion. I feel like this is a dynamic that I see a lot with people who lose their faith. I feel like they, they feel like they inherit a tradition, like something you have to carry. Like, here's this Christianity, and you, like, give it to somebody, and you have to carry this tradition. And it's heavy, and it's weighty, and it comes with all these weird things. Like, one, you have to believe that God died and rose again. You're like, okay, I'll carry it, but it's weird. (laughs) And you have to believe that these ethics that I have to hold on to that are right, right? And so you have those, and they're all in there. But if they're not grounded in an actual practice of everyday life, then when you evaluate them, they start to feel like heavy religious emptiness. Like it's a tradition that I'm, I'm called to carry, but there's nothing to it for the world around me. And so why should I carry it at all? And I feel like people just drop it altogether because they don't understand how the ways of God actually live themselves out in everyday life. How these like teachings or ideas about God actually play out in real life. And so you say, like, why do I have to carry this stuff? Why do I have to carry this idea of, like, trinity? Or why do I have to carry this idea of resurrection if it doesn't mean anything? And it's because we have forgotten that the way of Jesus is God's love worked out in everyday life. It is the way of God's love worked out into every single day. And when we forget that, we turn our faith into ideas and empty rituals. And I think we get it in, like, personal relationships. Like, if we did that to friends or spouses, everybody would hate it. Like, if I made my relationships with my friends or my spouse into rituals, they would not be my friends. But we do the same thing with God all the time. We turn our relationship with him into something that is simply a ritual. And the thing is, is all of us suffer from it. I feel like we feel like we're forced to carry something that is heavy and empty and we don't know what to do with it. And eventually we try to start throwing pieces of it away because you're like, well, Paul is angry and I don't know what he's supposed to do with real life. And so I'm just going to get rid of him because I don't know what to do with him. Or like Trinity, is it's heavy, it's weighty. I don't know how to explain it. It doesn't mean anything for everyday life. So I'm just going to get rid of it. You're like, why should I carry this heavy thing when it means nothing for how I live? So you start to reject certain pieces or drop it Altogether, all of us suffer when this happens. The world suffers because we have nothing to offer but empty rituals. And God, our God, goes unknown and unloved and unworshipped. We're just left with something empty. So Jesus diagnoses this in his first two stories. And in the second two stories, he's going to show us what it would look like if it did play out in everyday life. And so in Mark 7, verse 24, Jesus gets up from these conversations. He's just diagnosed empty religion. And he leaves the conversation and he travels into Gentile territory, which means non-Jewish territory. And he tries to hide out in a house, but a woman finds him. And they have this dialogue that is so strange. It says, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Already, I feel like we have a dialogue that is so interesting for Jesus. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go on your way, the demon has left your daughter. This moment is so weird because it feels cruel. At least that's how I, when I read it, I, I don't know how to other, read it other than Jesus seems like a jerk. And when you're so used to this, like, compassion moving from Jesus, you interact with one of these moments, and you're like, well, what do I do with that? And so different writers have tried to explain it in different ways. Like, one commentator said, uh, Jesus's face was so full of compassion, the words did not hurt. Which maybe, but it doesn't say that. <laughs> So we're doing, some, we're doing some gymnastics to make this comment not sting a little bit. I do like the idea, though, Or some say that Jesus was not yet ministering to Gentiles, so he's just making a statement of fact. But that's actually not true either. All throughout Mark, he's done so much ministry with non-Jewish communities. And at the end of chapter 6, he goes to a non-Jewish area, and he just heals crowds of people. So it's not that either. So what do you do with this strange moment? Well, an an interesting figure, Martin Luther, one of the church reformers. Every time I say Martin Luther, (laughs) he wrote about this moment, which I think is so fascinating, that the point of this moment is actually to see Jesus concede. That's actually the, the purpose of this moment, that Jesus is actually intentionally conceding or losing the argument. He is doing in this moment what he told the Pharisees to do, to not let tradition take priority over people. So Jesus concedes in order to love her. Jesus gives up power because he is not interested in winning the argument or controlling her. He does not want to exclude her. So he humbly concedes the point in order to move towards her. Now, on one hand, that feels challenging and uncomfortable. But then if we actually start to look at the narrative of Jesus' life, well, choosing defeat is actually something he does all the time. It's called the cross. Losing in order to make space for other people. So in this moment, he's challenging what he never sees the Pharisees do, give up control, give up power in order to make space for this woman. This is what it means for Jesus' way to be God's love worked out in everyday life. It is about a constant reflection on God's intention. And it's about giving up the need to win or control or exclude because if our need with our tradition is to win or control or exclude, it is no longer God's intention. This is a conversation that Paul is having in 1 Corinthians 13, that all the things the church does should be measured in love. That when you talk about meat sacrificed to idols, when you talk about how you gather around the table, or when you talk about whatever, it's all underneath the primacy of love. Does it meet God's intentions? So in this moment, Jesus realizes or concedes that this moment doesn't meet God's intentions. So he does what the Pharisees will not do. He creates space for her, concedes, gives up power and moves towards her in order to love her. And In the next story, you see him do something very similar. He does something the Pharisees, again, will not do to work out love. And again, it is a genuinely weird moment. So Jesus had this moment with this woman, and then he returns from that region, and it says in verse 32, as he's returning, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears after spitting, and then he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, be opened. And his eyes and ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. If the above moment, the story with the woman, is dealing with the Pharisee's tradition, here we're kind of coming back to the conversation of purity. But in both cases, Jesus is is showing us the same thing, what love looks like when it's worked out on the ground. And in this moment, he does something that is so interesting. Jesus intentionally becomes impure or unclean. Because in Jewish tradition, bodily fluids, very unclean. And Jesus like intentionally engages with them. So he puts his fingers in that dude's ears, which would have defiled him. He touches his tongue, which would have defiled him, and he spits all moments and gestures that would have rendered him impure. And so in the conversation about purity, he has become defiled, and he's done something wrong to himself in the Pharisees' understanding. But in this moment, him choosing impurity actually becomes the moment and the mechanism of healing. His entering into that impurity, working it out in this person's life, actually becomes the mechanisms by which this person is healed. See, purity is not something that can be taken away. It flows from God through our lives to others. And our traditions and our rules and our wisdom are only as good as the love they extend to others. They are only as good as the work that we see happening in Jesus with this person. If they do not lead us towards someone for that person to experience the work of Jesus, then there's something wrong with our wisdom, our tradition, or our rules. They are only as good as the love they extend to others. And if they do not extend love to others, they become empty and void. The way of Jesus is the love of God worked out in everyday life. It is love on the ground, in the real, engaging with actual people's lives. And as soon as it stops being that, we need to ask the question, are we holding an empty tradition, an empty ritual, or are we submitted to the way of Jesus? And so what do do we do with this? Well, as we close up, I just want to ask you a few questions. When you think about your own life, what beliefs, traditions, wisdoms feel abstract or disconnected from real life? What of your beliefs or your traditions or your wisdoms feel empty in that they have nothing to say to everyday life? Where does it feel heavy because it's empty? It doesn't mean the thing isn't true. So that's the tricky part about this, is just because it feels heavy and empty doesn't mean it's not true. The question is, is where has it become disconnected from real life and love being worked out on the ground? And it might just be helpful to name. Where has those things become heavy and empty feeling? Because if we name it, then we can start to work through, well, where did it get disconnected from love working itself out in the real so where does it feel empty and heavy in your own life? Where have you just like rejected and discarded things because they felt empty and heavy? Because they had no play in real life or real love. Where have our beliefs or our traditions or our wisdoms become about winning or about being right more than about loving? maybe you would never call it winning. I don't know that I would ever say outright that this belief in my head is about winning. But if you leave an encounter with somebody and you're mad because they did not assent to your belief, you probably have an empty belief. If that's the thing that bothers you is they did not agree with you, that's actually probably a problem. I'm not saying it's not important. It is. But if that's the primary thing is that they assent to something or believe something or say yes to something or check a box on something, our order has been switched. So where does it become about winning or being right more than it is about loving and extending something into someone's life? Where do our traditions or our beliefs keep us in control? This is, again, this is a hard one to answer, and so this might be one that you do in community. But where do our beliefs or our traditions, where do they enable us to stay in control where we never have to trust that God is doing something that might make us uncomfortable? Where are our traditions exclusionary of others? Where are our ex- traditions or our beliefs, where have they become exclusionary of of others, But see, the good news is that God has something so much better for his people than this. We do not have to hold to empty beliefs and empty traditions and empty wisdoms. Instead, he is moving his love towards us and inviting us to extend that to the rest of the world. To practice his ways in everyday life not as weird religious rituals or empty abstractions, but as something that actually matters to our own life and to the life of the world. He's inviting us to extend his love into everyday life. And the very first place that we practice and experience it is at the table. It's a moment where we practice that it's not about control, it's not about winning, it is instead about receiving that God has made space for us. And it is about practicing making space for others. It is about receiving his extension of love towards us so that we might leave this place of people who extend love towards the rest of the world. Let's see, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have, in every single way, move towards us and extend the love towards us. A love that calls us home, a love that shapes us into your people, a love that that names our coping mechanisms, that rescues us from sin, that forms us into your people, a love that is transformative in all. So God, as we experience the love that you're extending, would you turn us into a people of extension, who out of the abundance of you and in community begin to work love out on the ground and in the everyday. Help us to leave this place a people of creative, everyday love. In your name we pray. Amen.